From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, President Biden calls for new laws on assault weapons following three mass shootings in 10 days. And later, the latest from the World Cup. Ukrainians bear down in the cold following Russian strikes on their power grid. An encore for Roxy Music and Phil Manzanera. And Yerzhe Skolomovsky on his new film that follows the life of a donkey, a star who impressed the director at first glance. What struck me was the size of his eyes and a specific melancholic expression of those eyes. First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, November 26, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The British Defense Ministry has announced that Russia is likely removing its nuclear warheads from older missiles and using the unarmed missiles in Ukraine. Philip Marks reports from London. In a regular tweeted update, the UK's defense intelligence organization said Russian cruise missiles were being used in Ukraine with the warheads detached. The UK assessment of open source imagery from wreckage sites is that Russia has started to use missiles that were designed in the 1980s as nuclear delivery systems. Ballast has probably been swapped in for the nuclear warheads, the UK said. While the missiles can cause some damage upon impact, British authorities said they were, quote, almost certainly being deployed as decoys to confuse air defense systems. And their use highlights how depleted Moscow's longer-range stockpiles have become. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. Authorities in Ukraine say power is gradually being restored, but that millions remain without heat or electricity following Russian missile strikes. The U.S. has banned the sale of all communications equipment made by Chinese telecom firms Huawei and ZTE, saying they pose, quote, an unacceptable national security risk, part of a host of sanctions designed to restrict Chinese technology in the U.S. market. Here's NPR's Emily Fang reporting. The Federal Communications Commission voted unanimously to ban the import and sale of Huawei and ZTE equipment. This new rule applies to future purchases, but it is possible the FCC could revoke authorization for purchases already made. The FCC also restricted the use of Chinese-made video surveillance equipment from three major Chinese brands. Public security or government projects can no longer use products from Hytera, as well as Hikvision and Dahua, which have been linked to human rights abuses in China's western region of Xinjiang. The U.S. has put various rounds of sanctions on Huawei and ZTE, beginning under the Trump administration. Emily Fang, and Pure News, Taipei, Taiwan. Social media footage from China appears to show residents of the western city of Urumqi protesting against COVID restrictions after a fire at a residential block killed 10 people. China again reporting a record number of daily infections, even as millions in cities across the country remain confined to their homes. Here's the BBC's Leonardo, Will Leonardo reporting. The videos from Urumqi in the Xinjiang region appear to show some of the most widespread protests yet against Beijing's stringent COVID rules. Here, demonstrators chant, lift the lockdown. In another video, people can be heard singing the national anthem as the Chinese flag is held high. Other footage shows protesters facing off against officials in hazmat suits and breaking through barriers. Anger in the city appeared to build after a residential block caught fire, killing 10 people. Some online questioned whether pandemic restrictions prevented residents from escaping or hampered firefighting efforts. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Ukrainians in Massachusetts are taking part in a somber commemoration. Today marks Holodomor, a day of remembrance for millions of Ukrainians who died of starvation in the early 1930s. At that time, Stalin's Soviet Union engineered a famine that killed between 7 and 10 million Ukrainians. Andrzej Boyka of Melrose said the day takes on heightened meaning this year amid the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The last Saturday of November, we're remembering all these souls died from this genocide. Because if we know about that, we can prevent it in future. The public is invited to attend a Holodomor gathering organized by the Ukrainian Cultural Center of New England at the Boston Commons Parkman Bandstand at 3.30 this afternoon. Department of Conservation and Recreation officials are warning of potential road flooding along Morrissey Boulevard this weekend. DCR says high tides this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon may lead to lane or road closures from Freeport Street to UMass Boston. This has been a disappointing year for the UMass Amherst football program. The team wraps up its season today, hosting Army. The Minutemen have just one win this season and are trying to avoid repeating the 1-11 record from last year. But Coach Don Brown says his players remain motivated. If you look over the last six, seven weeks, I mean, obviously there's there's a gigantic amount of improvement. Um, hasn't reflected in the in the box score, but we're definitely making strides and feel really good about them. This afternoon's game marks the first time Army has played in Amherst. It is 40 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today and highs in the low 50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. President Biden is promising to do whatever he can on gun control before Republicans take control of the House in January. The idea we still allow semi-automatic weapons to be purchased is sick. It's just sick. It has no, no social redeeming value. Zero. None. President spoke Thanksgiving morning on a week that has been shadowed by more mass shootings. NPR senior political editor Domenico Montanaro joins us. Domenico, thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be with you, Scott. Three mass shootings in just 10 days. President Biden was blunt. But what does he have the votes to do about guns before Republicans take over the House? Well, there really aren't the votes to get a ban on weapons that can get off a lot of shots in a short amount of time passed. Um, there was a ban in place for a decade, as we know, and Biden has been voicing support for one. Um, even when people thought it would not would be politically unpopular to do so, um, the Democratic-led House passed a ban in July, but it didn't have enough votes in the Senate. Um, that hasn't changed. Um, it's interesting because the way Democrats in particular talk about this has evolved. You know, Republicans had been saying, you know, you don't want to politicize this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Democrats 
Democrats, though, have become much bolder in how they talk about it. Um, used to be seen as a potential political problem to talk about gun legislation in the immediate aftermath of one of these events. But these events have become so common, um, and there's been so much more activism and money around trying to implement gun restrictions. Um, our polling uh, with PBS NewsHour and Maris this year showed a majority support a ban on sale of automatic weapons like AK-47s or AR-15s. It's sharply divided, though, politically. Um, you know, Most Republicans don't want to see that. Nine in 10 Democrats and a majority of independents do want to see one. Uh, Democrats weren't shy about campaigning on this, including President Biden. You know, Democrats kept control of the Senate. They didn't see huge losses in the House, so not quite the lightning rod that it has been. And a majority in AP's VoteCast survey of 94,000 voters found half of voters want to see nationwide gun policy made more strict, while only about 3 in 10 want to keep gun laws the same. Uh, another direction. Looks like uh, the House will get a hold of former President Trump's tax records now that the U.S. Supreme Court has refused to get involved in the matter. Are we about to learn... Why Donald Trump has been fighting this for so long? I think about to is like a, a flexible term. <laughs> because yeah. Who knows how long it'll be uh, until we see them. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some leaks uh, potentially from Democrats in the next um, you know, six months to a year or so on this, because I would think next year when Republicans control the House, they're going to do everything they can to stop this from being released. Um, you know, it was always commonplace for presidents to reveal their taxes every year mm -hmm. in an effort to be transparent with people who would vote for them but not Trump. You know, he's always wanted to obscure the amount that he's worth, what his income is, how much he pays in taxes, what kinds of loopholes he uses. Remember in 2016, during that campaign, he said that he, you know, it was revealed he didn't pay taxes in some years, federal taxes, and he said that makes him smart. You know, and so that's just the way he views this. He's always been very private about this. His company, yeah, he doesn't, is not very open about what it does. It's uh, privately held. Um, so he just really never wanted to pull back the curtain and let people in. So uh, that's just kind of the way it's been for him. And it'd be interesting to see if we do get more information on this, especially as he's running for president again in 2024. And finally, a number of news outlets, New York Times, CNN, Axios, report that Donald Trump dined with Nick Fuentes, a white nationalist and Holocaust denier. I don't know. What do we make of that? Well, you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, Trump for so long has just been somebody who, you know, has kind of flirted with white nationalists. He's called himself a nationalist. You know, there was the obviously what he said about Charlottesville with good people on both sides and is one of the reasons why President Biden said that he was running against Trump in the first place was because of this, you know, cultural divide that that Trump has really stoked. And he was set to have dinner with Kanye West, or Ye, yeah. Ye as he calls himself now, uh, the rapper, and he brought these individuals with him to the dinner. But clearly Trump wasn't mm -hmm. that upset about it. He didn't put out any kind of statement, you know, saying that okay. they shouldn't have been there in the first Thanks. place. And this is, you know, just Thanks. the kind of thing that we've heard him say, you know, publicly, that he would even pardon people from January 6th. Domenico Montanaro, thanks so much. You're welcome. The World Cup is almost a week old. And the U.S. men's national soccer team is still in it. U.S. players even upended or ended up tying England. Uh, it's been a dramatic tournament so far, upsets and political protests. NPR's Tom Goldman joins us. Hi there, Tom. Thanks for having me, Scott. Okay, let's start with that match against England. Uh, the U.S., when it is underdogs, came out with that. Uh, here, look, I've been watching nil-nil draw. Uh, but why were they so upbeat about it? 
Because they played even with the number five ranked team in the world, uh, an English team that trounced Iran 6-2 in its opening match in a country, you know, with all that rich history in the sport. So to hold England scoreless and to outplay the Brits for much of the match yesterday, that's a job well done. Now, no one on the U.S. team was happy. They wanted the three points you get for a win. And the Americans, again, showed this worrisome inability to finish great scoring chances with goals. Goals are important, Scott. Yeah. But they felt they showed what they're capable of. They're a young, talented team that put together a total match effort. And they say that gives them confidence going into next week's critical final match in this initial group stage. And, and what's at stake at this stage of the tournament? Oh, everything. Uh, the, you the you set me of, up for that, didn't you? I did. <laughs> and you fell for yeah. it. Yeah, um, the goal of all 32 teams at this World Cup is to finish in the top two in their group and move into the knockout rounds where matches are single elimination. You win, you go on, you lose, you're out. Currently, the Americans are in third place in their four-team group, but it is very tightly packed. And if the U.S. beats Iran Tuesday it qualifies for the knockout stage. If it loses, it's out. So it's a simple goal, win and you're in. The U.S. knows that to really show it's a team to be taken seriously on the world stage, it has to be in the knockout round. It has to get to the knockout round. So the match against Iran becomes huge. If that weren't dramatic enough, there's also been uh, political protests really throughout the tournament and a very brave Iranian team. Yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about the concerns about the host country, Qatar, and its policies toward LGBTQ communities and treatment of migrant workers, those concerns are still there. But the troubles in Iran have now taken center stage here in Qatar. Yesterday, Iran's thrilling last-minute victory over Wales shared the stage with some ugly scenes between two factions of Iranian fans, those in support of the current protest movement in Iran that's been going on for months, and those supporting the Iranian government that's cracking down on protesters. Now, at the match, there were angry words. There was intimidation by the government supporters. Qatari security backed those government supporters by confiscating protesters' flags and T-shirts. So we're wondering what kind of measures will be in place next Tuesday as this situation has escalated over the course of Iran's first two matches. Wow. Back to footy. Uh, as we near the end of the first week, what are you looking for? A lot, uh, including is Japan for real after upsetting Germany? How will tournament favorite Brazil play without star Neymar, who's out with an injured ankle? And tonight, I am going to Argentina versus Mexico, aren't I lucky, to see firsthand if Argentina can recover after its shocking loss to Saudi Arabia. Now, Argentina needs to win or the great Argentine forward Lionel Messi won't get the redemption he's been seeking for so long, finally leading his country to a World Cup title. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman in Doha. Have a brewski. Oh, sorry. Thanks for being with us, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. There is a question that hangs over this holiday weekend of thanks. Have mass shootings become the American way of life? There's mass shooting every few days, not seems, is. Devin Chandler, University of Virginia College football players, were shot to death on November 13 in a parking garage in Charlottesville after a team trip to see a play in Washington, D.C. A former member of the team is in custody charged with murder. Daniel Aston, Kelly Loving, Raymond Green Vance, Derek Rump, Ashley Greenpaw, 
were all shot to death at Club Q, an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, just six days later. A suspect is in custody, facing five counts of murder and five for hate crimes. And just three days after the Colorado shootings, Brian Pendleton, Kelly Pyle, Randall Blevins, Tanika Johnson, Lorenzo Gamble, a 16-year-old who has not been named, were shot to death in a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia. The alleged shooter turned a gun on himself and also died. Ten days, three mass shootings. And who would be astonished if, as soon as I say these words somewhere, another mass shooting may strike? The Gun Violence Archive reports more than 600 mass shootings in which four or more people are shot have occurred so far this year. That is more than 12 mass shootings a week. They are crimes and outrages, but we can no longer call them surprises. In 2020, the United States had a homicide rate of 7 per 100,000 people killed. Canada's rate, by contrast, was 2 per 100,000. Australia's was 1. We report these statistics many times a year, but I wonder if they haven't become a kind of white noise we cease to hear. Instead, let me ask some questions. How many parents flinch just to see a message from their children's school and worry if it's a shooting? How many queer, bi, or trans people, or those who are black, Jewish, Hispanic, or Asian American, might fear just to meet up with friends? How many elderly people may be afraid to leave their homes? How many faithful in church, mosque, and synagogues might wonder about strangers who appear in their houses of worship? How many parents worry that if our teenagers want to see cherry holiday decorations with their friends, a gaggle of them laughing might suddenly be targets of another horrifying attack? What do we lose when we live with such fears? You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, you'll hear about the new film, EO. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Authorities investigating the fatal shootings of six people at a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia, say the gunman bought the gun the morning of the attack and that he left a note on his phone listing grievances against co-workers. The U.S. is banning the sale of communications equipment made by the Chinese companies Huawei and ZTE. It's also restricting the use of some Chinese-made surveillance systems. The FCC voted unanimously to adopt new rules, putting the bans in place, citing a risk to national security. And Elon Musk says Twitter will try again to launch a verification program next week. The first attempt flooded Twitter with imposter accounts. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, bringing wines from around the world to members with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Russian cruise missiles have smashed Ukraine's power grid and water system this week, causing outages at hospitals and making everyday activities, including cooking, often impossible. Just in the past day, the strikes killed at least 10 people around the country. NPR's Joanna Kakissis joins us from Kiev. Joanna, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. And what's it like there with rolling blackouts? So uh, the rolling blackouts are actually an improvement because more than half of the city actually did not have power just yesterday. And, and people have been managing by using backup generators. You know, you can hear the sound of the generators all over the city, in, including outside NPR's own office. Um, but there aren't enough generators. So other European countries and the World Health Organization, they're promising to donate more. Uh, people are also using wood-burning stoves to warm up or to cook. Um, I've met people who say they're wearing thick sweaters or even their coats to bed or wrapping themselves and their children in extra blankets. Everyone is adapting, including doctors in a Kiev hospital specializing in heart surgery. Earlier this week, the power went out during a 14-year-old boy's open-heart surgery, which just infuriated cardiac surgeon Boris Todurov. He posted a video online of his colleagues operating with headlamps. He's saying the electricity is off and the generators need some time to start, and so this is how we work now. What's the Ukrainian government trying to do to help people get through this period? So the government is trying to help. For example, they are opening up shelters around the country where people can warm up, where they can charge their phones, maybe maybe even have a hot meal or a shower. Um, I stopped by one of these shelters in a suburb of Kyiv. Uh, that's where I met 69-year-old Nadia Telushkina, uh, who is from the recently liberated city of Kherson. She was charging her phone here, even though the service is still very spotty. SMS. I can't make phone calls. Sometimes I can send messages. Sometimes they get through. Sometimes they don't. And just outside the city, we also saw a crew working on fiber optic cables in the freezing sleet. Uh, they said they would be working for at least two more days. What's morale like, Joanna? So Scott, morale is actually very good. You know, many Ukrainians I spoke to, with seem to shrug off their own hardship and say, look, we will find some way to make this work because the Russians have thrown much tougher things at us and we have survived. Uh, today, for example, people here, Ukrainians are marking 90 years since the Holodomor, which was a man-made mass famine. It refers to Soviet leader Joseph Stalin's forced collectivization of agriculture between 1932 and 1933 when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. Ukrainians resisted this collectivization back then 
happen because they wanted control of production. So Stalin responded by withholding food, by starving people, leading to the death of more than four and seven million Ukrainians in less than two years. So Ukrainians say, look, it doesn't matter who is in the Kremlin, whether it's Stalin or Vladimir Putin, the policies are just as damaging and we survived then and we will survive now. And Pierce Joanna Kakissis in Kiev, thanks so much. You're welcome, Scott. Argentina's prisons have been overcrowded for years. The country's Ministry of Justice and Human Rights has declared the system in a national state of emergency since 2019. Inmates routinely go without sufficient food, medical attention, soap, toilet paper, even beds. And it has fallen on their families to try and provide the basics for them. Lucila Pelletieri is on the line now from Buenos Aires. She's the senior reporter for the Global Press Journal and has been covering this story. Ms. Pelletieri, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What have you found in your reporting? I have been investigating how this crisis is affecting the families of people in prison. And I found that the overpopulation means that the living condition and resources available are decreasing. So their families, and mainly the women of their families, are responsible for bringing them food, clothes, uh, but they are also responsible for making paperwork for the relatives to receive medical attention, to study, and to have a lawyer, for example. Yeah. They are taking care of all these tasks while they work and take care of their families outside prison. Uh, they do all of this while they are dealing with the stigma of, of having a family member in prison. And a family member who they have to provide for in prison. Yes. And well, the issue is that as the state is not doing it, they are taking all the, the responsibility. Yeah. And the stigma is making it more hard to achieve. For example, one of my sources, Monica Tapia, told me that she was fired for all of her cleaning shops after telling her employers that her husband was in prison. She told me that sometimes she wakes up at night crying and needs psychological help, but she can not afford it. Tell us about some of the stories that stand out for you. I, I, I have to tell you, you have a story there about a man who had an ear problem that I can't stop thinking about. Yes, well, this is the case of Monica Tapia's husband. This man had a crocodile in his hair for three months. He told about this situation to her wife, and her wife did all the paperwork to get him medical assistance, but it took three months to a doctor to solve him. The prison system is overburdened, Only, and I have read only 57% of the inmates even have a bed. What can be done about that? The main issue we are having here with overpopulation is that it has been changes in the law that are making more easy to people to go to prison and more hard to get out of prison. So in this situation, the people who is living there is going to increase every year. And building more prison is not going to really solve the issue if the system continues to work this way. What does the government say? Uh, any plans to try and improve conditions? I actually talked with two people from government 
One was Maria Laura Garrigós, the Undersecretary of Penitentiary Affairs at the Federal Penitentiary Service. Uh, she said that efforts are underway to improve living conditions, but the agency cannot control the number of people sentenced to its facilities every year. And the other people from the government I could talk with was Estela Maris Martinez, the General Defender of the Nation. She's uh, in charge of defending victims. She told us that she's doing her, her best to improve the living condition, but that she's not the, the one in charge of deciding who is going into the, the prison. What are some people who've examined the situation calling for to try and improve conditions? Well, they are asking for more, more support. They are asking for better living conditions, better treatment. They want to have more opportunities of, of having a shop while they are in jail. Uh, mm -hmm. They want to have more access to the education because they see this is really important to prevent people to to go to jail again after they commit their sentences. Lucilla Pelletieri, who is the uh, Global Press Journal senior reporter in Buenos Aires, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Soviet gymnasts enjoyed great privileges, but they also had to endure enormous pressure and physical pain in return for the honor of representing their country. Ray Meadows explores the world of Soviet gymnasts in the 1970s in her new novel, Winterland. You can join guest host David Folkenflick tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR or this member station by name. Democrats were expecting to lose big in the midterms earlier this month, especially given President Biden's low approval ratings. Why they didn't do as expected is still a topic of conversation and debate, especially among activists on both sides of the abortion debate. And Paris Danielle Kurtz-Lieben reports. Ahead of the midterms, pollsters and strategists and, yes, journalists, were obsessed with voters' top issues. But then people rarely vote with a single issue in mind, and that makes it hard to know how much abortion swayed the midterms. But there are a few things we can say. One is that the Roe overturn seems to have immediately motivated women, says Democratic strategist Tom Bonnier, CEO of Target Smart. Almost everywhere what you saw was a pretty significant surge in gender gap in the you know two to four weeks after Dobbs. And then you know, we saw an increase but not, you know, not not as pronounced after that. Bonnier and other strategists will be watching for more data to answer which women were fired up, as well as how much abortion motivated men. A second takeaway, pro-choice policies in isolation did well. Five abortion-related ballot measures all came out in favor of abortion rights, even in red states like Kentucky and Montana. And yet, says Democratic strategist Rachel Bittekoffer, There are millions of people who voted yes for a referendum to codify Roe or whatever, and then went and voted for pro-life conservative Republican candidates. Furthermore, plenty of politicians who famously favor restricting abortion easily won. For example, Republican governors Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida. Why is that? 
Bittekoffer thinks it's about ineffective communication by abortion rights supporters. You want to make sure people understand this man is the guy who's signing into law the bill to steal your rights. The problem so far has been breaking voters' connections to party identity. People like heuristics. They like something that can tell them what to do without any mental investment. And that's why the party label is so incredibly powerful. Still, that's one Democratic take. Marjorie Dannenfelser is president of SBA Pro-Life America. She sees wins by Abbott and DeSantis as proof of their political power. The one thing that you have in an election on the pro-life side, and we've always had, is the candidate the human representation of of the argument on the debate stage. The reason that the governors are winning well, who have been ambitious for life, is that they've been articulating their position. They have the bully pulpit of the governorships. One takeaway that's harder to quantify is what kind of messaging works. For Dan and Felser, it's clear that Republicans failed and that Democrats found a winning strategy. They ended up uh, with a position that we need to label Republicans as for abortion bans generally and do not go into the specifics of what a Republican is for or a pro-life candidate is for. Multiple Democratic strategists agree that staying away from gestational limits was smart, though they frame it differently. Here's Ana Lilia Mejia, co-director of the Progressive Center for Popular Democracy. I think it was not only smart but right of them to say there isn't some line, there isn't some like countdown clock in which you go from being a full autonomous human being to property of the state. That leaves open the question of what the party see as their best paths going forward. To Republican pollster Witt Ayers, his party needs to abandon the tightest abortion measures. We have a number of laws that have been passed by Republican legislatures that are far from the mainstream, uh, that include no exceptions, for example, for, for rape or incest. And that's the very definition of outside the mainstream. The question is what Republicans do with that information. In the midterms, many Republican candidates avoided the topic of abortion. To Dan and Felser, that was a mistake. One thing you cannot do is expect to be a successful primary Republican candidate who says that it's a state's issue. And I don't expect to ever promote or sign a federal 15-week or heartbeat protection. Rebecca Katz, senior advisor for John Fetterman's Senate campaign, likewise thinks her party needs to not just message, but pass abortion rights legislation. I don't think that folks should just be high-fiving because we want to cycle at, at, with such a devastating impact, right? Like, there is a lot of work to be done. Both sides will be plowing ahead, in other words, just with new information about who might support them and how. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Trees are struggling to survive in many cities right at a time when the benefits of trees are needed most. Research published recently in the Journal of Forestry shows the number of urban trees has dropped in the U.S. David Nowak is one of the authors of that study. He's an emeritus senior scientist at the United States Forest Service, joins us from Albany, New York. Thanks so much for being with us, sir. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. What did you discover in uh, urban tree populations? Well, what we did is we looked at photographic evidence from across the United States and urban areas. 
And what we found is that between 2009 and 2014, most of the states, 46 out of 50 states, or 51 if you include D.C. as a district, lost tree cover during that five-year period. Mm. And we estimated we're losing about 36 million urban trees in our country per year. What's happening to trees? Do we know? Many things. One of the obvious ones that we saw was development. That tree was there, and all of a sudden there's a parking lot or a building. So we're taking out natural landscapes, if you will, to put in some new developments. Yeah. Other areas, we're just losing trees, and there's multiple reasons. It could be choices of homeowners taking trees out. We have insects and diseases coming through there taking trees out. Some trees die just from old age. I mean, trees don't last forever, but right now we're in a phase that we're not getting enough tree cover coming in to offset the losses that we're seeing in the canopy. And, and remind us, why is it important to have trees in urban areas? Wow, they have huge impacts on human health and well-being. I mean, we have a whole, whole host of things that trees do that people may not realize. We stand in the shade of a tree. We feel it cooler. Temperature leads to changes in energy production. So if we cool the environment and shade our buildings, we don't produce as much energy to cool, which then affects carbon emissions. Uh, trees remove pollution from the air. It affects water quality by changing the water flows, but the trees evaporating water and slowing the flow down. Trees sequester carbon. This is one of the few benefits you can actually see a tree accruing because as the tree gets bigger through time, half of the dry weight of that tree comes from carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah. On the other side, when the tree decays and dies, that carbon goes back to the atmosphere. So trees are these vessels that can store carbon. And lastly, trees absorb UV radiation. Well, you've convinced me. The Inflation Reduction Act, I gather, is allocated uh, $1.5 billion for the U.S. Forest Service uh, to plant trees in cities. Is the solution to plant more trees or different kinds? Probably yes to both, to plant more trees and different kinds. The other thing that you want to think about this too is also we might want to change how we're managing our city systems because two out of three trees in urban areas in the United States come from natural regeneration, not from planting. Mm. And the reason we don't have more natural regeneration occurring in cities is because we mow back that natural regeneration to create lawn landscapes. So one option is to change how we, our mowing patterns and allow natural regeneration to occur. will not work everywhere. So on the other side, we need to plant more trees to help facilitate for the loss of trees from all those things we talked about in the past. And the reason we might want to consider, and this is a tricky question, new species is the issue of climate change. So as climates tend to change, the natural pattern of species composition will change also. And cities tend to have more exacerbated impacts of climate change. They tend to be warmer already. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at what is our climate going to be probably 20 to 30 years in the future and pick the species that will survive under the conditions going forward. But you don't want to do it too soon, but you don't want to do it too late. So it's trying to find that window of what are the best species that will likely survive in the coming years. David Nowak is Emeritus Senior Scientist at uh, the U.S. Forest Service. Thanks so much for being with us, sir. Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Winter holiday season festivities are getting underway. This afternoon, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is set to join her Roslindale neighbors for the community's annual holiday tree lighting. Celebrations also are scheduled for today in locations including Boston Seaport, Brockton, and Lowell. 
Today marks Holodomor, a day of remembrance for millions of Ukrainians who died of starvation in the early 1930s. At that time, Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union engineered a famine that killed between 7 and 10 million Ukrainians. The public is invited to attend a Holodomor gathering organized by the Ukrainian Cultural Center of New England that's at the Boston Commons Parkman Bandstand at 3.30 this afternoon. It's 40 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, and highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. LabShares Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities, labshares.com and the holiday pops helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the holiday pops december 1st through 24th holidaypops.org on this week's wait wait don't tell me nathan lane explains why he decided to go perform on the broadway stage if you go to someone's office and 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 you have to sing to them they they hate that I'm Peter Sagal. We'll come to your house with this week's news quiz, but you won't have to look at us. Be there for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Io, Yerzy Skolomowski's new film opens and a pair of unforgettable eyes. They're the eyes of a donkey born in a Polish circus that closes, which sends the donkey onto a trail of decidedly un-Disney-esque adventures. But real-life encounters with humans, some of them friendly, some of them callous and worse. Eo was won the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival and is Poland's Oscar entry. And Jerzy Skolomowski who has also received the Golden Lion Award for Lifetime Achievement at the Venice Film Festival, joins us now from Santa Monica, California. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. What moved you to tell the story of a donkey? Well, I was trying to break from so-called linear narration, Mm -hmm. the traditional narration of the film based on the three-act structure, And uh, honestly, I am fed up with that structure. I thought that it may be much more interesting if I will try to find some other way of narrating the film. I could perhaps introduce an animal character Mm -hmm. as one of the leading or perhaps the leading character of the film. I decided that the donkey would be the leading character of Io, and actually the title Io is a kind of onomatopoeic 
uh, version of the sound which Donkey makes. Io, io, this more, sounds more or less like that. Yeah. I have read that it wasn't always a donkey in your mind, but that you saw a donkey's eyes? By chance, I came across Donkey, and what struck me was the size of his eyes and a specific melancholic expression of those eyes, which I thought it, it could be read as a comment on uh, every situation that Donkey would find himself in, and then by cutting to this uh, enormous eyes, one at least could imagine what what's going on in Donkey's head, how he reacts into what he is witnessing at that very moment. Yeah. I made a note of the names, Ola, Taco, Marietta, Etor, Rocco, and Mela. They're the six donkeys who played Eo. Correct. Did you feel a sense of partnership with them? You've worked with a lot of actors in your 84 years. <laughs> I wonder what it was like to work with these, uh, with these actors. Well, first of all, that was necessity for the animals' well-being. Yeah. That was number one priority on our set. You know, we made this film actually out of love for animals and nature. Mm. There's a, a particularly heart-wrenching sequence that begins, of course, we're in the middle of the World Cup, but it begins with a village soccer, as we call it in this country, soccer game, and there's a penalty kick, and we'll hear the title character get inadvertently involved. That created a big, big conflict between the two groups of the soccer yeah. fans, or more precisely to say, soccer hooligans, because yeah. uh, after that one team lost the game and blaming for that the donkey because it bray in the in the most crucial moment the penalty kick executor missed the yeah. goal well it was it was heart-wrenching because of course there are some fans who took it out on the donkey yes it was one of the more difficult scenes to be shot although no donkey right. was was hurt None of those blows were reached uh, his body. We were actually beating the so-called uh, punching bag was lying on the couple of chairs and that, yeah. that represent the body of the donkey. Well, you see a scene like that and you don't think much of the human brain or heart. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. I do think like that, yes. Many, many times I got a reaction of the viewer of the film who said, you know what I did immediately after returning from the cinema? When I returned home, I hug my pet. So that, that tells you quite a lot. There are moments of happiness in the life of this donkey. 
Fortunately, there are some happy moments and even some funny moments. This film is not uh, at all sad. It gives the audience opportunity to laugh. I'm very happy when I hear in the cinema people laughing. But the happiest maybe sequence is in one of the episodes, he goes to the stable of beautiful Arabic horses. And those are really like the aristocrats of the animals. And the beauty of those horses and the fact that, that our poor donkey it's much smaller, much weaker, uh, not at all elegant. But he enjoys the company of them and feels like maybe he is a part of, of, such, a, of such a beauty contest. Uh, that's quite lovely and is very pleasing to watch because the beauty of those animals is such that it's really breathtaking. Jerzy Skolomowski, his new much-lauded film, Eo. Thank you so much for being with us, sir. Thank you. All the best. During this holiday season, we're bringing you some of our favorite interviews from the past year. Earlier this fall, we spoke with Phil Manzanera, lead guitarist of that legendary glam rock band, Roxy Music. To mark the 50th anniversary of their first recording, the band members went on tour and reissued all of their eight studio albums on something called vinyl. The band had just one top 40 hit, Love is the Drug. But its music is considered essential in the history of rock. Witty, lyrical, innovative, and remarkably danceable. The band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019. Here's our conversation with Phil Manzanera. Why did you all decide to come back together? Well, I was um, sitting out having a cup of tea, as you do mm-hmm. in, in the UK, with uh, Brian Ferry, the singer at Christmas. He said um, to me, do you fancy doing some gigs because it's our 50th and how else are we going to celebrate? And I said, well, if you want to do it, I'll do it. Um, I'll ring up Andy, I'll ring up Paul. And it's as simple as that. It's a privilege to be able to go out and play, you know, 50 years later. I can hardly even believe that I'm saying those words, 50 years. I've heard a story that you didn't know you were auditioning for the band. Well, no, that was the second time. And the first time I did answer an ad in the Melody Maker for a guitarist, but that didn't work out. And then, yeah, I got a call from Brian saying, would you come and mix the sound? And I said, well, I don't know anything about mixing the sound. And he said, don't worry, Brian Eno will teach you. So anyway, I went along when I turned up at this derelict house, actually, which had electricity, however. They said, well, there's a guitar there. Do you want to have a go? And so I said, show me how to play it. And uh, they said, okay, well, it goes like this. I said, fine, let's play. Obviously thought that I was damn good. So they said, would you like to join? Three weeks later, we are in the studio recording the first album. Hey, it's just about being in the right place at the right time. (laughs) 
Roxy Music was known for being ahead of its time. Your great cut editions of you. It's been called proto-punk. And as I was drifting past the Lorelei, I heard the stinky sirens wail. What are we hearing there? I mean, the thing about Roxy was that we call ourselves inspired amateurs. You know, we wanted to play interesting music presented in a visually attractive manner. But, you know, we loved the Velvet Underground. And, you know, they had very few chords in their songs. And, and it was about simplicity, but it was about the words that had a different subject matter than just Boy Meets Girl. In the lyrics that Brian was writing, there's lots of metaphors to do with art. How do you think of the term that's often hung on you, glam rock? I used to dis discuss this actually with David Bowie, and he used to say to me, Phil, the thing is, there was high glam and low glam. We were high glam. <laughs> But as soon as everybody jumped on the bandwagon, we changed. By the third album, and the, you know, that's after like 18 months, that was all gone. We were in suits. The audience was still wearing glam clothes, and they were just totally confused. Well, I, I, I mean, Roxy Music known what I have, you know, satin pants, tiger print jackets. <laughs> you got it. How, how are you dressing for this tour? I have my original stage outfits. I can't even get my arm into the leg part. Of it. I was so thin back, you know, when he went to 21. I could feel at the time there was no one knowing for the reason. 1982, more than this. What do you think uh, your music was able to put into to rock that wasn't there before? There was a lot more to Roxy over the 10 years that we we made albums. So the different phases or stages of Roxy uh, provided different aspects, rock music or innovative kinds of rock music. By the time you get to more than this, it's all distilled almost into ambient music. Avalon has a very strong mood particular track, more than this, really distills everything that we started out doing into almost like a haiku poem, a very simple statement, which seems to have a lot of resonance with people. You know, more than this, there's nothing. It's quite prophetic, really, because after that, there was nothing. <laughs> there was no more albums recorded. More than this. It brings me to another piece of music that you co-wrote. Let's listen to Take a Chance with me. Why, after such a beautiful and successful album, did you break up? When we got together, yeah, it was like a band, but it was a bunch of people who had 
certain musical interests in common, but lots of very different musical ideas. And right from the beginning, almost after the second album, we all started doing solo projects. We loved playing together and creating something unique. We still wanted to work with other musicians. And really, that is the whole story of, of Roxy. And we all went off and did hundreds of different musical projects and things. The big picture is that you're in it for the whole of your life. And so spread it out. Enjoy. And what do you, what do you think people will take home with them? Well, Hopefully a souvenir. Bro. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They'll buy a little swag while they're at the concert. Yeah. They'll take back, yeah, their memories. You know, any resonance that it has for them, they'll be drifting back and just reflect. It depends what entry level you came to like Roxy. And presumably you're there at the concert because you like Roxy and you paid money, good money to come and see it. And so it will have memories for you. And, and I'm sure um, people will talk about it as they're going home. Bill Manzanera is a lead guitarist for Roxy Music. 50th anniversary tour this fall. Thank you so much uh, for being with us and congratulations on being back. Thanks so much, Scott. And we spoke with Phil earlier this year, so please stay tuned this holiday season for more of our favorite interviews of the year. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the market. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today and highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, with seasonal exhibit All Aboard Trains at Science Park, plus 4D and Omni Theater adventures like the Polar Express. Tickets at mos.org. Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. 
I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. If WBUR is indispensable in your daily life, make it a priority in your year-end giving. A monthly gift will keep you grounded in facts and new ideas. As our thanks, get a year of The New Yorker on your digital device and in your mailbox at a 40% savings. It's a limited-time offer, so get in on it while you can at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the runoff for the Senate seat in Georgia, and later protests over COVID lockdowns in China, a controversial new cabinet minister in Jerusalem, a giant hedge fund that's been buying and decimating newspapers moves into trailer parks, a new museum opens on and about Broadway, and Maria Ressa on her new book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, and her warning to the world about disinformation on social media. Without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without these three, we have no shared reality. You cannot have democracy. But first, our newscast. It's Saturday, November 26, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Ukraine and Russia say they have swapped prisoners of war several times this week. And NPR's Greg Myrie reports on the increased pace of exchanges as the fighting in Ukraine enters its 10th month. Ukraine and Russia say they each received a total of 94 POWs in exchanges on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Prisoner swaps have been taking place periodically since the fighting began in February, but it's unusual to have them take place on three consecutive days. The two countries have now returned more than 1,000 POWs. However, there's still no sign that the two sides are close to negotiations that could lead to a ceasefire or an end to the war. Ukraine and Russia held a few brief talks shortly after the fighting began, but have not met in months. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen has stepped down as the head of her ruling party, saying she takes responsibility for the party's showing in today's local elections. Results show the opposition Nationalist Party has won several of the major races on the ballot, including the mayor's office in Taipei. In the U.S., Democrats fared much better than the president's party typically does in midterm elections. Both sides of the aisle now figuring out how much abortion rights factored into the results. Here's Imperial. There was evidence that the issue of abortion immediately motivated some voters, particularly women. Immediately after the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade in June, several states saw a spike in voter registration among women. More data will provide better answers as to how much abortion might have motivated men as well. Strategists and activists from both parties told NPR that it was smart for Democratic candidates to avoid discussing gestational limits. Some abortion rights opponents believe that going forward, they should push what they call consensus measures like a federal 15-week abortion ban. Abortion rights supporters, meanwhile, want to push to codify Roe in more states and at the federal level. 
Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. The weekend after Thanksgiving may no longer signal the start of holiday shopping, but retail experts say the Black Friday weekend still brings out many shoppers searching for bargains. And the National Retail Federation's Catherine Cullen expects this weekend to be the busiest in five years. An estimated 166.3 million people are considering or planning to shop over Thanksgiving weekend this year. That's nearly 8 million more than we saw last last year and is the highest we've seen since 2017 when NRF first started asking this question. The holiday shopping season has started strong against the backdrop of high inflation. Initial data from Adobe Analytics show shoppers have spent more than $7 billion online on Black Friday. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. With just over a month left in the year, state transportation officials are reminding people to drive safely as Massachusetts approaches a dire milestone. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. Last year, Massachusetts saw the most road deaths in more than a decade. 418 people were killed, including drivers, passengers, pedestrians, and cyclists. Mass Department of Transportation Chief Jamie Tesler says drivers need to be especially careful during the holidays. As a reminder to all drivers during this uh, very busy period of time, pay attention behind the wheel, drive hands-free, drive sober, obey traffic laws, Take public transportation if that is an option for you. So far this year, the state reports 374 road deaths. That puts it on pace to surpass last year's total. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. State police say they've issued a citation to a 36-year-old Canadian man after the overheight tractor trailer he was driving through the Sumner Tunnel crashed into the tunnel's ceiling yesterday afternoon. The crash closed the tunnel for at least an hour with traffic detoured to the Ted Williams Tunnel. Some vehicles already in the Sumner Tunnel were stuck there for more than an hour. Lowell kicks off the holiday season today with its annual City of Lights events. Lowell Director of Cultural Affairs Peter Crew says the festivities begin at noon with a magic show at the Boot Mills Complex. After the show, the National Park Service will be hosting a uh, winter-themed craft event uh, that's free for kids. And they'll also be running their annual Holly Jolly Trolley service as well. Crew says the City of Lights parade gets underway at 4.30, and events wrap up with the lighting of Lowell City Hall and the 256-foot Wanna-Lancet Mills smokestack. Parades and celebrations also are scheduled for today in locations, including Boston Seaport and Brockton. In the forecast for the Boston area, plenty of sunshine today and highs in the low 50s. Lows in the upper 30s tonight. For Sunday, rain mainly late in the day and highs in the low 50s. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. It's time to vote in Georgia again. Runoff will decide the U.S. Senate race there between the Democrat, Raphael Warnock, and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. Election Day is December 6th, but nearly two dozen counties are opening polls today for early voting. Now that a lawsuit over voting access has been resolved, 
We're joined now by Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Run off the last time Georgia voters selected a U.S. senator in 2020. What's changed? Well, Georgia's voting laws have changed. There was a sweeping 98-page law that did many things last year, but one big change got us to this point. All runoffs in Georgia are now four weeks after an election instead of nine. So instead of an early January election, voters will have the last opportunity to vote on Election Day, now December 6th. Because of that, there's a much tighter window for counties to get finished processing the last election before they pivot to prepare for this election. And politically, the stakes are a little different because this time around, Democrats have already locked up control of the U.S. Senate. So while there are some benefits to Democrats having a 51st seat or Republicans having a 50th, there's a tiny bit less urgency and pressure around this quicker runoff election, meaning less money and advertising than that 2021 showdown. And help us understand what was at stake this week, specifically whether counties could allow voting today, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Well, since it's a shorter period from one election to the next, Scott, the normal three weeks of mandatory in-person early voting in Georgia shrinks down to just five required days next Monday through Friday. And you might be wondering, well, Aren't people voting today, this Saturday? Yes, counties have the option of starting as soon as possible if they wanted to. In fact, we've already seen 16,000 people vote Tuesday and Wednesday before the holiday. But there was definitely drama. The state originally thought counties could do Saturday voting, but reversed course after finding a state law limiting Saturday voting if it comes after a holiday, a.k.a. Thanksgiving on Thursday and the day after, the aptly named Georgia State Holiday. So Democrats sued, saying there was precedent for voting on a Saturday after a holiday and that the state was wrong. Well, a judge agreed, an appeals court denied the state's request to block Saturday voting, and after state and national Republican Party plus the National Republican Senatorial Committee tried a last-ditch appeal, Georgia's Supreme Court shut them down too, mm. which is why there is now voting today. What I'll call this first round of a Senate race uh, saw record spending and, of course, a narrow margin. What kind of impact could an extra voting day have on the outcome? Well, every single vote counts, and right now there's about two dozen out of Georgia's 159 counties that are opening their polls today. Many of them are larger, metropolitan, Democrat-heavy areas, but there are several rural Republican counties that are voting today, too. It's also important to note historically in Georgia, Scott, more Republicans show up during in-person early voting than Democrats. But for this Senate race, Raphael Warnock actually earned more votes than Herschel Walker during the early voting period. Now, there is some concern among Republicans that their efforts fighting an extra day of early voting instead of pushing their voters to show up could ultimately end up harming Herschel Walker once all the votes are counted. But given the shortened window and outsized attention on the race, it's hard to tell who will ultimately benefit until early voting is over. Plus, a runoff election is full of surprises. So even if early voting numbers look good for one candidate, who shows up or doesn't on the election day could be the deciding factor that polls and predictions won't necessarily capture. Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting, thanks so much. Thank you. We turn now to China, where that country's COVID policy 
could be at a tipping point. Earlier this month, the government said it would relax some part of its strict zero-COVID rules, but with infections now rising across the country, local authorities have begun to resort to extreme sudden lockdowns and mass testing. Dissatisfaction with the country's zero-COVID policy is growing, and this was the scene earlier this week at a Chinese factory that makes Apple's iPhones. Workers there were protesting the COVID regulations and overdue pay. NPR's Emily Feng is in Taiwan and joins us. Emily, thanks for being with us. Hey, Scott. It is unusual to hear the sounds of protests uh, in China. What happened there? Yeah, you just heard some extraordinary scenes. They happened at the Foxconn plant in central China. And Foxconn is a big factory that assembles a lot of our consumer electronics, including the iPhone. And according to videos and text shared by workers with this, at least hundreds of these workers were just fed up with COVID controls and the lack of pay they were getting. So they effectively went into hand-to-hand combat, as you just heard, with security guards who were dressed in this head-to-toe protective COVID equipment. And there's acts of dissent like this that are continuing across the country. Last night, I was watching with the rest of the country as China was gripped by these videos showing uh, more extraordinary scenes of mass unrest spreading across the capital of Xinjiang in the country's west. And tell us more about what's happening there, please. Well, parts of Xinjiang have been under continuous lockdown for more than three months and counting. And then on Friday, there was this residential fire there that killed 10 people. And what pushed people over the edge was video from that fire show fire trucks were unable to reach the fire immediately because the building that caught on fire was under partial lockdown and the entrances were blocked after months out of use. And what's horrible is in the video, you can hear people inside screaming for help, but the firefighters just couldn't reach them. Now, Xinjiang is effectively a police state, but despite these controls, according to the videos, what looked like hundreds of not thousands of people came out after the fire and they protested because they just had enough with COVID controls. And here's one of the videos they shared. I mean, you can hear the raw emotion. These people are chanting repeatedly, liberate the city, meaning lift the lockdown. And there are smaller protests like this that are happening in other Chinese cities right now, including Beijing, actually, just outside the home of my Beijing producer, where residents are pushing back against being locked down in their own homes. Emily, it sounds like like something's got to give. That is the real question. You know, what is the ultimate goal of China's zero COVID policy? At first, it was really popular. It was to keep people safe against an unknown virus. But there was supposed to be an end to these policies, and they haven't ended. And that's created this huge cost to not just the economy, but to people's health, and in this case, their safety. And there was some hope just a few weeks ago when some of these rules were relaxed slightly. But then as soon as you saw COVID cases go up, the same extreme lockdowns and testing came back immediately. And this time, these policies are a lot less publicly supported than they were three years ago when this pandemic began. NPR's Emily Fang in Taiwan. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. A provocative far-right politician in Israel with a history of hostility toward Palestinians has been tapped as the next Minister of National Security. Appointments part of what's expected to be the most right-wing government in Israeli history, headed by the once and future Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And here's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Itamar Ben-Gvir has risen in Israeli politics from a sidelined fringe of the extreme right 
to one of the country's most influential political figures. Just 15 years ago, he was convicted in Israeli court for inciting racism and supporting an anti-Arab movement, which Israel has outlawed as a terrorist organization. Now in the government, Benjamin Netanyahu is expected to form in the coming weeks. Ben Gavir will be a member of the security cabinet and hold a new expanded position as Minister of National Security. Ben Gavir has called for tougher policing of Palestinians. Here's what he told reporters earlier this week after a rare bomb killed an Israeli teenager in Jerusalem. He said wherever the terrorist is found, whether inside Israel or the West Bank, there should be a complete blockade of the town, going door to door looking for them. He said we must restore deterrence. Ben Gavir has been promised a new expanded cabinet ministry overseeing not only the Israeli National Police, but also the paramilitary police force that conducts operations in the occupied West Bank. Outgoing Defense Minister Benny Gantz accused Netanyahu of giving Ben Gavir a, quote, private army and warned of security chaos. Noah Satat of the Association of Civil Rights in Israel is concerned there will be increased violence with Ben Gavir in charge of police. He is demanding unprecedented power over police policy. In that sense, we're also concerned about private Jewish militias that have in the past tried to take on the role of the police or collaborate with with police. We are worried that in this government, these violent extremist militias will have a much more prominent role. There's been speculation that the U.S. may refuse to work with Ben Gvir. NPR asked the White House, but it declined comment. Yesterday, an Israeli soldier in the West Bank was suspended from duty after he was filmed taunting a left-wing Israeli activist. Ben Gvir is going to bring order here, the soldier told the left-wing activist. You have lost. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Texas Rangers were formed almost 200 years ago to protect white settlers and range across land that would become Texas. The white hats of the elite law enforcement agency came to symbolize justice, but for many Mexican and Mexican-American families, those white hats have been a longtime source of fear. A new podcast from Texas Monthly tells the story of the Rangers from a different perspective. You can join guest host Eric Dickens tonight on All Things Considered for a conversation about the podcast White Hats. Listen live tonight at this station's website or at npr.org. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9:18, and coming to WBUR City Space Monday, December 5th. Award-winning chefs and cookbook authors Barton Seaver and Jeremy Soule discuss all things seafood and sustainability. For tickets, go to wbur.org/events. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org/cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University. Presenting Once, a musical based on the motion picture, December 7th to the 10th at the Booth Theater, bu.edu slash CFA. LabShares Newton, offering state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities just outside Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. 
and the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Police are offering more details about their investigation into the mass shooting earlier this week at a Walmart in Virginia. Authorities have confirmed a list of grievances on the phone of the gunman and say he legally purchased a pistol they say he used. A federal judge in Missouri says a 19-year-old woman cannot be in attendance when her father is executed. The judge has ruled that a state law barring anyone under age 21 from witnessing an execution is constitutional. And the holiday shopping season has started strong against the backdrop of high inflation. Initial data from Adobe Analytics says uh, show shoppers spend more than $7 billion online on Black Friday. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. This week, 36 applicants in New York State learn they would be allowed to open stores to sell cannabis for recreational adult use. The state gave priority to people who'd been arrested for a marijuana-related offense when the substance was still illegal in New York, a move that's intended to correct for discrimination in the past. One of those recipients is Matthew Robinson, 36-year-old black business owner in Troy, near Albany. He was arrested twice for marijuana possession and later served 12 years for his involvement in a robbery of a convenience store. He joins us now. Thanks for being with us, Mr. Robinson. Thanks for having me. You already own Bold Mold Eliminators, which is a mold removal service. What made you want to open a, a cannabis dispensary, too? Um, I've seen an opportunity, you know, to do something right. You know, it's a big opportunity. It's a big thing. So I decided, you know, to put my name in the hat and uh, possibly get it because I know it can impact my family, my community. You were arrested for possessing marijuana in 2005. You were 19? Yes, sir. How much marijuana? Um, at the time, I think it was just a couple of bags. What happened? So um, I was actually coming from a friend's job, walking to another friend's house. And there's a mall there called Crossgates Mall. So as I'm just walking, the cops just swarmed on me. You know, they grabbed me up. They took me over to the car. They handcuffed me. They didn't really give me any information on what was going on. So I don't know anything. You know, they, they mm -hmm. pat me down. They find the marijuana. They lock me up. They take me back to the mall to like a small room. And they tell me that there's a big fight at the mall. You know, but at the end of the day, they found out that I wasn't involved in the fight. But now I got these two bags of weed. And it's like, okay, now you, you, know, you got to go to jail for this. And you got to get an appearance ticket. Now you got to go to court. All this stuff or something, you know, that's just minor to me at that time. I'm like, oh, it's not that serious. But, you know, they locked me up for it. They made me pay a fine and do like a help the community thing. 
And that was what I had to do for that first one. So, yeah. You were arrested a second time for weed? Yeah. So I got arrested a second time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was riding in the car with two of my friends, and the cop just pulled me over. He come to the car, asked my driver's license. Then he said he smelled weed in the car. So, and now we got to get out the car and he's searching the car. You know, I had a dime bag on me, something small at that time. It wasn't a lot. So, well, I, I, I have to ask, you know, why did you have it on you that second time? You'd already learned what a problem it could be. Young, not mm -hmm. knowing, like, you know, not really understanding laws and how everything worked. You know, you hear about laws, you know these things, and they tell you this, but coming from where I come from, you're doing whatever you can to make some extra money. You know, when you're struggling and everybody around you is nice clothes and you're doing this and doing nice things and here you are, you know, your shoes got holes in them. <laughs> you're not, you don't want to walk around with stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you sell weed to make some extra money, you know? Yeah. Well, now you've got this license. What do you, what do you want to do with this cannabis dispensary? I want it to be successful. You know, I want it to run properly. I want to make New York proud. I want, you know, people to know, like, you know, we came from a time when cannabis was taboo and totally against all, like, the rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. But now we're at a point where people are starting to see, okay, cannabis isn't this horrible thing that's destroying worlds and stuff like that. So I, I just want to be successful with this and keep going and, you know, the sky's the limit. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Yeah. Um I have to ask, Mr. Robinson, do you uh, do you feel you're getting this license to be, I don't know, a way of righting a wrong in the justice system? Yes, I think New York State has done a great job with their legislation, the way they've been moving forward to try to sort of fix um, errors from the past. So the way they did it for me, I think it was the right way. Mm -hmm. Regardless whether I got the license or if I didn't, it'd still be the right way because they're expunging records. You know, they're doing stuff mm -hmm. to try to actually fix it, you know. But at the end of the day, you know, when you lock somebody up for a day, that person cannot get that day back. Their kids don't get it back. So they're doing a great job. It's good headway. They just got to keep going. The state is doing great. I'm so proud to say I'm from New York. Matthew Robinson has received one of New York State's first cannabis dispensary licenses. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Most scientists believe that COVID spilled over into humans from an animal, maybe a bat. Now, a new study shows why these viruses sometimes end up in humans and how we might be able to stop them. NPR's Ari Daniel explains. Not quite 20 years ago, Raina Plowright stood in a forest in Australia's Northern Territory. It was dusk, and she watched as hundreds of thousands of bats, called little red flying foxes, launched themselves into the air. This audio is from a video recording Plowright made at the time. The sky was black with these huge bats taking off in this stream of animals across the landscape looking for nectar. Plowright, who studies pandemic prevention, was interested in the bats because they carry a virus called Hendra. It's harmless to bats, but horses coming into contact with infected bat feces and urine have contracted Hendra and gotten extremely ill. Frothy nasal discharge and odd behaviors, like throwing themselves against the wall of a stable. 
when people treat sick horses, that's when people get sick. That's when people get Hendra virus. Now, Hendra doesn't spread easily among humans. There have only ever been seven cases. But each time a virus jumps from animals to people, it gets another chance at evolving and becoming more infectious. With a Hendra fatality rate around 50 percent, the possibility of an outbreak could be devastating. I mean, we're talking about a, a catastrophic civilization-changing event. Plowright wanted to understand the conditions that make Hendra more likely to jump from bats into horses. And if she knew that, she thought she might be able to halt those spillovers before they ever happened. First, she had to capture bats to look for the virus. So every three months, Plowright and her team strung up nets along the riverbanks, keeping an eye out for crocodiles. They actually learn your behavior. So we'd have to move our nets every day so that the crocodiles wouldn't learn where we were. Plowright sampled the blood of the bats, and the results were surprising. We often couldn't find any virus at all within the population. Then, a few years later, Plowright was out testing the bats again for Hendra. She'd even convinced a team from National Geographic to come and document the dramatic swarms of bats. Except this time, she couldn't find any. So we arrived, and all of these hundreds of thousands of bats had disappeared. There'd been a cyclone off the coast of Australia, and there was no food for the bats. When Plowright and her crew finally did find bats, it was an unusually small group. They were emaciated and starving. And when they sampled the bats' blood, it was teeming with Hendra virus. And so that cued us that maybe nutritional stress is leading to infection and shedding of this virus in these bats. Plowright and her colleagues wanted further confirmation. So they looked back at 25 years' worth of data of another species of bat, black flying foxes in eastern Australia. And they found the same pattern. When these animals went without food... They just don't have enough energy to maintain an immune response to keep these viruses in check. This means they have to look farther afield for food, so they splinter into small groups and move into urban and agricultural areas, which brings them into contact with horses and people. But... Whenever there was winter flowering, there was never a spillover case. We were just stunned. As long as the bats had enough food, the virus didn't show up in people. But due to climate change and habitat loss, these pulses of wintertime food are becoming less common. And this suggests an elegant intervention. What we really need to be doing is planting those winter forests back. And it's not a really difficult thing. These findings from Plowright, now at Cornell, and her colleagues are published in the journal Nature. And she says the same scenario is playing out in Asia and Africa as well. So the world is just being transformed at this alarming rate, and animals are responding by changing the distribution to survive. Often that leads to virus shedding. So to give bat-borne viruses fewer chances of spreading, Plowright advises, pay attention to their habitat, plant the right kind of trees, and keep those massive colonies healthy. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Uh, anything going on with sports? The World Cup. No goals, but also no loss for Team USA against England. And the NFL season kicks into high gear. 
Howard Bright of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, my friend. Uh, the World Cup continues in Qatar. Team USA has yet to win, but they also haven't lost. Two games, two ties. And a tie is impressive against England, right? No, absolutely. It's a, a game they were supposed to lose. This is why they play the game, Scott Simon. Yep. Who's going to win? I don't know. This is why they play. So the U.S. was, uh, they were supposed to beat Wales and they were supposed to lose to England. And instead, it, you know, it didn't work out that way. And so now, at the very least, the United States has their destiny in their own hands. If you beat Iran, you advance. If you don't, then you don't. And so I, I got to tell you, Howard, mm -hmm. it's hard not to root for those brave Iranian athletes. I don't care yeah, who they're playing. No question. And, and especially with one that we saw the report yep. uh, was a, arrested and removed from uh, actually arrested for uh, supporting the women's movement and the protests taking place over there. So it's yeah. very, very disturbing. Sports always intersects with uh, you know, with the reality of, of the games. Uh, the host country, Qatar, was the first team to be eliminated. Well, there goes all that talk about home field advantage, huh? Yeah, well, they shouldn't have had the World Cup in the first place. They're the worst team to ever qualify in recent years, I believe. And, and the, the circumstances with them receiving the bid in the first place, always, always sketchy. And so it's not that much of a shock if we're if we're being completely honest here. Um, but I'm, you know, the team, I just love talent, Scott, to be honest. The team that I really enjoy watching is France. I just love their talent, love watching Mbappe play. Oh, uh, they... bleu. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They're playing, and they're playing Denmark in, in a couple of hours. And so it's just, for me, World Cup is, is one of the few sports where I just get to enjoy it. I don't cover soccer on a daily basis. And so... It, it, you just get to sit and enjoy the tournament. And so that's sort of the, the space that I'm in right now. By the way, between you and me, our engineers are really on their toes to uh, cover uh, all of our expressions of enthusiasm today. Let me ask you about U.S. football. Uh, the real season, in a sense, kicks off after Thanksgiving. Doesn't seem to be a clear favorite to even get to the Super Bowl, does there? I, I guess the, the powers that be in the NFL have finally gotten what they've wanted. Complete and total parity. So right. in the AFC, it, it was supposed to be Buffalo and the Chiefs because they played that great playoff game last year. They've got the two best quarterbacks in the league with Pat Mahomes and Josh Allen. And gee, everybody is pretty much within a game of each other. Buffalo, Miami, even the Jets, Baltimore, Cincinnati, who went to the Super Bowl last year, Kansas City. Tennessee, all of them are good teams. Nobody's great. And then, of course, in the NFC, you've got Philadelphia, San Francisco, and even Minnesota's 9-2. and two. So here we go, final weeks. Boy, what a great season, Howard. Really, I can't, I, I can't wait to see more games. Um, what happened to Aaron Rodgers and the Packers? Uh, age, I guess. And that's the same thing that's happening to Tom Brady as well. At some point, you can't play forever. And... You know, you got to leave it to the youngins, as they say. This, this, it's going to be. I, I just don't see Green Bay being what they've been. Aaron Rodgers is up there. Tom Brady is up there, and maybe it's time to give somebody else a shot. But Green Bay's not a great team this year. And the LA Rams, the uh, incumbents, 
You mean the defending champions? Yeah. <laughs> the defending champions who were in last place at three and seven. It's just a crazy season this year. And I'm still going to hang with Buffalo because I think they've got the best quarterback and it's a quarterback league. Yeah. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media. Thanks so much for being with us. Take care. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. India is a quickly developing country that's forecast to overtake China next year as the world's most populous nation, so it is constantly on the search for new energy sources. Most of India's electricity still comes from burning coal, but the government is trying to encourage solar energy. NPR's Lauren Fair reports from Mumbai. How many stories is this building? This is 27. 27. So we're climbing up a ladder now, up onto the top of the roof. Quite a view. Wow, you can see the mountains. So that is what is known as the Thane Creek. Body of water in the distance. It's not just the mountains that are impressive, though. It's the view before them of thousands of rooftop solar panels. So you see most of the buildings, you can see that that building has solar. So Just a few years ago, these weren't here. No, not at all. Chinmay Divekar is a solar entrepreneur who's part of this change. His business partner is Jai Vyas, an accountant who in his 60s has become a solar evangelist. Before our interview, he sent me a pamphlet he wrote entitled, Sunny Makes Money. When I wake up in the morning and uh, I have committed myself to speak about solar to at least three people every day. You are one of them today. Until recently, though, it was a tough sell. Despite having lots of tropical sunshine, about 70% of India's electricity comes from coal. Renewables mostly mean massive solar plants in the deserts of Rajasthan or Gujarat. Or farmers using a panel or two to run irrigation pumps in rural areas where the grid is shaky. But solar never really caught on in urban India. The government subsidizes electricity, so it's cheaper here than in the West. And most solar panels are imported and expensive, not worth it for any single household. But that's changing, with record government investment in renewables this year, says energy economist Vibhuti Garg. Players who want to set up solar rooftop can register themselves. They'll get government subsidies. Government subsidies for domestic solar panel production. That's what neighboring China did to make its own solar industry so successful. Jai and Shinmei used to import rather expensive solar panels from Singapore or Germany. Now they're using Indian ones. So these are Indian made? Uh, these are Indian made uh, panels. Uh, these are, this is our latest installation. It says Renewsys India Private Jai shows me his latest installation atop a big condo complex on Mumbai's northeast outskirts. The building manager is Swati Nevki. As the prices of panels fell, her building's residents took a gamble on solar. Brookhill Society invested uh, 1.4 million rupees. To, that's to buy the, the panels themselves and install them. Panels, entire project. In year 2020, we have got Oh, half a million recovery savings. So that's within less than three years, the investment is, investment is recovered. Yeah. 
they recouped their investment with lower energy bills. But there's a catch. These new domestic panels aren't totally domestic, Shinmei says. So basically the silicon that goes inside, that's still in, imported from China. And that is subject to price fluctuation and so many other factors. Some components still need to be imported. Correct. But now there are huge manufacturing capacities being set up by, I don't know if you know these two groups, Adani and Ambani. And, Who uh, hasn't heard <laughs> those two names yeah, yeah. in India? Yeah. Two of India's biggest conglomerates are getting government help to onshore the entire Indian solar panel supply chain. And if that happens, prices may come down even more. In the next 10 years, economists say solar may become India's cheapest energy source. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, on a rooftop in Mumbai. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This is Small Business Saturday, and the sixth annual Shop the Block Market opens for the holiday season in Nubian Square this afternoon. The Roxbury Market features a diverse group of more than 50 local small businesses. It runs each Saturday through December 24th. The organizers say this will be the final year of the Shop the Block Market. President Biden and his family today spend their last full day of this Thanksgiving visit to Nantucket. The Bidens have been on the island since Tuesday and are scheduled to leave tomorrow. The Bidens have a more than four-decade tradition of spending the holiday on Nantucket. It is 42 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the low 50s. Lows overnight in the upper 30s. Tomorrow you can expect rain with highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Concord's traditional holiday winter market, featuring dozens of regional artists, the first weekend of December, theumbrellaarts.org. Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. Later today on This American Live. A Russian soldier calls a Ukrainian hotline that Russian fighters can call to surrender. You won't be castrating us, he asks. He really doesn't know if he should trust them. The Ukrainian on the hotline answers, don't worry. Stories of people daring to make the leap from one world into another. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. This week on Disney Plus, the first season of Andor came to a close. It's the origin story of a rebel in the Star Wars universe. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports that the science fiction adventure series being, is being hailed as the most complex, mature narrative in the Star Wars franchise. 
At the end of the film Rogue One, a Star Wars story, Cassian Andor dies a martyr, having pulled off a rebel mission to steal the plans for the evil Empire's superweapon, the Death Star. The series Andor shows what led him to that moment. Here's how Diego Luna, who plays the title character, describes it. It's very dark times in the galaxy. There's no Jedis around. Oppression is everything, you know, there's no freedom. It's the awakening of a revolutionary. It's the journey of a guy that finds the confidence to believe he can be part of change. The first episodes flash back to Andor as a little boy in a tribe of children on the planet Canari. There are no adults around, and that's the first clue that something very bad has already happened in their world. While exploring the wreckage of a spaceship that crashed nearby, Andor gets whisked off to live on a different planet. He's used to lose everything and have to start from scratch. He's a refugee, someone that has been forced to migrate. Andor goes from being a broke young guy on the run for murder to a cynical recruit for a rebel heist of the Empire's quarterly payroll. I'm taking my cut. I did my job. But when he's sentenced to a slave-like prison, Andor becomes the catalyst for a prisoner breakout. I'd rather die trying to take them down than die giving them what they want. The story isn't just about Cassian Andor, but players on all sides. On the hunt for him is a demoted Empire inspector who lives with his disapproving mother. An antiques dealer and a wealthy senator lead double lives as they help fund the revolt. Revolutions take money. Showrunner Tony Gilroy created the show after working on Rogue One and having written movies such as Michael Clayton and the Bourne Identity franchise. For many years, he's been fascinated with empires and revolutions throughout history. I mean, I have a library downstairs just on the Russian Revolution alone. I can go between the Montagnards and the Haitians and the ANC and the Ergon and, and the French Resistance and the Continental Congress. And literally, you could drop a needle throughout the last 3,000 years of recorded history. And it's passion, it's need, it's people being swept away by betrayal and their own ability and failure to, to commit. And oh my God, it's just everything. Gilroy infused that kind of drama into Andor, and he's been pleasantly surprised by the passionate reaction by critics and fans, even those like himself who were not necessarily hardcore Star Wars aficionados before. My interest was to not be involved in quote-unquote, the royal family of Star Wars, you know. And the expanse of this massive galaxy that, that we get to play with, I mean, most people never have never seen a lightsaber. They don't know what that is. In many ways, that storytelling approach harkens back to the anthropological roots of Star Wars. George Lucas says he created the franchise as a political allegory after the Vietnam War. He was thinking about other historical moments when underdogs revolted against empires. Here's Lucas on the 2018 series James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. I like spaceships, but it isn't the science, aliens, and all that kind of stuff that I get focused on. It's the, it's the how do the people react to all those things. So that's the part that really fascinates me and I'm interested in. Andor does have some classic Star Wars elements, adorable pet-like droids, alien creatures, and the occasional battle on land and in space. But it's the political themes and complex characters that shine, says Diego Luna, who is also an executive producer of the show. Even though that this happens in a galaxy far, far away, it has to be realistic to have an impact. 
And it's because you know about the characters, you care about them, you want them to survive, you know, you want them to, to win. Luna is already on the set in London shooting the second and final season of Andor. It won't be out till 2024. And spoiler alert, Gilroy says the very final scene of the series leads Cassian Andor directly into the first scene as hero of Rogue One. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. The Museum of Broadway. Open this week in Times Square, people can learn about the history of Broadway and what goes into creating a Broadway show. Think they got an exhibit on B.J. Lederman, who does our theme music? Reporter Jeff Linden got a preview. The Museum of Broadway is the brainchild of Tony Award-winning producer Julie Boardman and Diane Nicoletti, who's created many fan experiences. The longtime friends were chatting a few years ago, says Nicoletti. And so she was like, you know, one of my investors asked me one day, like, why is there not a Broadway museum? And, like, I just stopped in my tracks and I was like, you're right. Why isn't there one that's brilliant? Like, let's get on this. (laughs) And so they did. After the pandemic hit, they took a lease on a closed Irish pub right off Times Square and filled three floors with exhibits, some interactive. We are a museum. We're also an attraction. And so, as Oscar Hammerstein wrote, let's start at the very beginning. Welcome to the Museum of Broadway. I entered a room with oversized playbills on the wall and QR codes in case you want to buy tickets. A film about the history of Broadway noted that the theater district started way downtown near Wall Street. The city's first documented performance in 1732. The exhibits start with a Broadway timeline, two floors filled with lots of pictures and artifacts illustrating the history from minstrelsy and vaudeville up to the present day. There are special rooms dedicated to Broadway shows, like the glitzy Ziegfeld Follies, complete with actual costumes from the early 20th century. Many of the exhibits have been created by Broadway set designers. I walked into one room which had corn as high as an elephant's The corn is quite high, so we enter the Oklahoma room. That's Ben West, the museum's resident historian. On the side of a wall designed to look like a barn, you can see pictures of the original 1943 production, as well as replicas of Richard Rogers' music manuscripts and Oscar Hammerstein's lyrics for this groundbreaking show, which integrated song, story, and dance. It is Oklahoma in particular that really represents an excellence in how they are all woven together to tell a single theatrical story. There are rooms dedicated to such important Broadway shows as West Side Story, A Chorus Line, Rent. Curator Ben West says the museum will be continually updated. For instance, one exhibit of current costumes has a mannequin with a sign but no clothes. Hugh Jackman is currently naked. (laughs) That will sell tickets. (laughs) West walked me to the final exhibit, the making of a Broadway show. So we will knock on the stage door, 
open the stage door and descend into a wonderful world created by David Rockwell and company. The exhibit is an immersive dive into the backstage of every Broadway show, from a stage manager's desk to a room dedicated to writers to costume and set design areas. In one of the museum's Instagrammable scenes, you can get your picture taken on a stage with the auditorium in the background. And there are videos with hundreds of theater makers. At the end of the exhibit, there's a link to a website with information about careers on Broadway. But curator Ben West adds... Well, not quite the end, because there's a gift shop. <laughs> the Museum of Broadway is officially open now and forever, its founders hope, like the old ad for cats. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. Maria Ress's new book is called How to Stand Up to a Dictator. She knows. She has. Maria Ressa leads the news site that she co-founded, Rappler, in its reporting on the corruption, malfeasance, and human rights crimes of the Philippine regime of former President Rodrigo Duterte. She was recognized for her bravery in journalism, along with Russian editor Dmitry Muratov, with a Nobel Peace Prize in 2021, and yet Maria Ressa faces several criminal charges in the Philippines. The book is not only a memoir, but an alarm bell for a world to resist the malicious disinformation on massive divisive social media platforms. Maria Ressa joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I feel the need to put some perspective on our conversation. Um, how many years in prison do you face? I mean, it depends on which part and which month and depending on which case, right? At its most, the maximum prison sentence was 103 years. And now I, I, it has been rolled back. There's seven left and that's, it's the rest of my life still, about 75 years or so. Yeah. Do you have to worry about what you say in an interview? I do in specific cases. I will stick to the facts. <laughs> Maria Ressa, what do you think social media platforms are doing to us? Creating our worst selves. We know in 2018, MIT said that lies spread faster than facts. That if you see a lie, you are 70% more prone to share it, to retweet it, than a really boring fact. When you take that to its extreme, what does that mean? Lies are rewarded. So we have created a situation where there are no facts. And without facts, mm -hmm. you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without these three, we have no shared reality. You cannot have democracy. Oh, my. But but at the same time, didn't, didn't you need and have to use social media to become a force for honest and bold reporting with Rappler? Especially if you're online, right, Scott? Yeah. I mean, when we were creating Rappler in 2011, my elevator pitch is that we build communities of action and the food we feed our communities is journalism. But that was before surveillance capitalism ratcheted up. Sur surveillance capitalism, I should ask, when we become the product, in a sense, because everybody's putting together a database? Yeah, I think more than that, it's like we're essentially cloned. So machine learning builds a model mm -hmm. of you that knows you better than you know yourself. And then they use AI to take all of our clones, and that is the mother database for micro-targeting. And when this happens, our emotions 
are essentially, our biology is weaponized against us. Your view of the world is changed through your emotions. You suggest that the Philippines were a particular target for Cambridge Analytica. It was actually Christopher Wiley, the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, right? He called us the Petri dish. And, and part of the reason is because until 2021, we Filipinos spent the most time online and on social media globally. And before mm-hmm. social media, we were the SMS or the texting capital of the world. So when Chris Wiley said that Cambridge Analytica tested these tactics of mass manipulation in countries like the Philippines, and that if it worked here in our country, then they would, his word was, port it over to you. Right. And and I mean, the weirdest thing for me is that the two biggest stories in my career had to do with how Filipinos were the testing ground for attacks against America. That's Mm 9-11 and now information warfare. Well, tell us how that worked in the Philippines. Probably the first pilot recruited by Al-Qaeda. He was... In, a, in Supermax prison at that point in time, his name is Abdul Hakim Murad. And he told Filipino police about a plot to hijack planes and crash them into buildings. And he named the buildings, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, the Trans-America Building, and then other buildings. Yeah. You have suggested in interviews that whether we know it or not, the world is in a kind of World War III now. How so? So I started looking, especially after the presidential elections of the Philippines, May this year, when we overwhelmingly elected Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son and only son and namesake of our former dictator who was in power for almost 21 years. So he was overwhelmingly elected, partly because information operations starting in 2014 changed history in front of our eyes. It turned Marcos from a pariah into a hero. Then you had all these other elections coming up and kind of the rise of the far right. Um, The world is shifting geopolitically, and we're in, I keep saying we're in the last two minutes when you just look at the number of democracies globally. We have been rolled back to 1989 levels. Today, 60% of the world is under autocratic rule. Of course, I don't have to tell you, um, because you've had conversations with some of them, uh, the leaders of of high-tech enterprises, of social media platforms will say, look, we are a democracy. Uh, everyone can participate. Everyone can have an account. Anyone, more or less, can say whatever they want. That's democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone can say what they want, but it's not about freedom of speech. It's about distribution. It's about the fact that these platforms, because they make more money at it, distribute incendiary materials, lies, laced with anger and hate, that those get greater distribution, that repeatedly pound essentially free speech, in my case, I was pounded after we did this weaponization of the Mm -hmm. internet series with an average of 90 hate messages per hour. You know, you could just come to the U.S. and be a talking head, write more books and have a life, have a a good life. I run a company called Rappler that has been forged in fire we survived six years of Duterte. We continue to do investigative journalism. This is a high-stakes game of chicken. But I know mm-hmm. we are standing on the right side, not just of history, but of the law. I'm not going to give up. I, I, think, I think this is the battle that matters. Maria Ressa Herbrook, 
how to stand up to a dictator, the fight for our future. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Weekend Edition from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Total Wine and More, where shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. More at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dedham Community Theater, now showing Devotion an aerial war film based on a true story and the best-selling book. Showtimes at DedhamCommunityTheater.com. Volante Farms in Needham. Full-service Christmas tree stand with hand-decorated wreaths and greens, poinsettias, and trim a tree. Holiday hours at VolanteFarms.com. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus today and tomorrow at 3 at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org. Hi, it's Robin Young. As you give your year-end contributions to organizations that make the world a better place, how about putting WBUR on your list? Give a gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Even your old car can help fuel the journalism that keeps us all moving forward. Learn about all the ways to support WBUR and choose the one that's right for you, please, at WBUR.org. education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.